Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So the main story, some White House officials trying to restart talks with China to avoid a trade war before U.S. tariffs on Chinese products take effect on July 6th. This according to three people familiar with the plans, setting up a battle with others in the administration who favour a harder line. So what is going on? Joining us now is Ian Shepardson, Pantheon Macroeconomics Chief Economist. Ian, it's something that's driving sentiment, and yet it's something that's so difficult to get your hands around on any given day. Well, it is because it's it's pretty clear that within the administration there's something of a fight going on. Um, I'm I'm pleased to hear that that perhaps there are still some adults in the room, uh, and I think that uh, talking to China to resolve what are genuine issues. I mean, you know, I, I'm very much on board with the idea that Chinese theft of U.S. intellectual property is an outrage. Yeah. Uh, and the way that China forces U.S. business into joint ventures is also an outrage. I mean, there's there's some real issues of substance here, but. But the idea that we can deal with those issues of substance by having uh, a tariff war just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And perhaps that's the argument that's now being made within the administration. But of course, uh, talking about it isn't the same as doing it. And and, uh, and we need to see outcomes. Markets want to see clarity. They want to see uh, outcomes rather than just news that the administration's thinking about doing something maybe a bit differently. But at least it's, I would say, uh, the news is a step in the right direction. But I, I need to see something happen. So, Ian, there are some outrageous things happening in China, and there are significant barriers to entry as well. But I think some of the, the administration might push back and say, well, the approach of the last 10 years hasn't helped. Um, why shouldn't we go about doing things differently? Well, I guess the the approach of the last several years or, or decades even has been uh, not to address these things head on because remember that the trading relationship the U.S. has with China happens because it's mutually beneficial. American consumers like buying cheap things from China and that's something that some people in the administration don't seem to really understand that we've run an enormous trade deficit with China because China is the lowest cost producer of an awful lot of things, clothing, furniture, electronics that yep. people like to buy and they like to buy them at prices that are way, way way below anything that could be achieved in U.S. manufacturing. So sentiment improving this morning off the back of this story um, by our colleagues down in Washington, D.C. Also, the fundamentals look a little bit better um, in Europe, the PMIs. Looking yes. solid yeah. um, compared to where we have been and the, yeah. um, the the direction of travel. Yeah, that's kind of a funny story because European sentiment really ramped up in the second half of last year. Everybody got very excited. We had a run of yeah. very, very strong data. And then uh, that was never sustainable, but I think a lot of people were getting out their rulers and extrapolating. And so when it wasn't sustained, they got unhappy. And now we're kind yeah. of back to something that looks more sustainable and, and still quite positive. Can you predict or give your probabilities of to where the Fed will be the end of the summer? Summer begins, you know, July 1st beckons. Where are we going to be after the August meeting? Where will the Fed be? Because there's a huge belief out there they're out over their skis. They're just ahead of the game. Well, you know, I think that the 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 data flow that we're going to get on the U.S. side between now and the September meeting is going to be very strong, very positive, uh, and we might see unemployment potentially hitting rates that we haven't been seeing since the late 1960s and heading lower. And it's also conceivable that between now and and September we're going to see. Uh, a finally, a sustained pickup in wages, or the beginning of a sustained pickup in wages. So we might see markets finally beginning to think, well, you know, hey, the Fed's talking this aggressive game, and yeah. uh, maybe they're right. Maybe I mean, right. within within this is, 
the arch debate, David Blanchflower with us yesterday saying, look, there's still a whole part of America that is feeling not fully employed. The Washington Post, I think it was earlier this week in what blog, talking about four-fifths of America where real wages are sketchy. You know, they've seen some wage growth, but yep. it's been eaten up by a little bit of a spirited inflation. When do those people get their fair share? Well, this is uh, uh, unfortunately an issue that the Fed can't directly address. You know, this is an Agreed. issue for, for politicians. All the Fed can deal with is the aggregates. You know, the, a central bank can't conduct monetary policy on the basis right. of, of distributional problems and inequalities and inequities, which are very deep in the U.S., uh, and probably are getting deeper, the Fed can only deal with the aggregates. And the aggregate that's scaring them is that the pool of, of labor is shrinking to the point where we're looking at uh, rates we haven't seen for two generations. And that ultimately yeah. starts to make them nervous about the distribution of future inflation risks, even if there are tens of millions of people who aren't seeing anything that right. they would call themselves you know, an economic recovery. Within the core equation, what's the most interest to you right now? Consumption dynamics, investment dynamics, Government will maybe well the fiscal expansion yeah. and yeah. then export dynamics. What matters? The big thing now is capex. You know, capex has been the driving force between the slowdown that we saw in 2015-16 and the rebound that began in in mid 16 and has advanced in pretty much a straight line ever since. That's all almost all been a capital spending story. It started in the oil business when oil prices. Yeah. bottomed out. Yeah. But now it's broadening and it's deepening. And I'm pretty bullish about this because it's boosting productivity growth and it's boosting corporate earnings. Yeah. And it's holding this down inflation. This is domestic investment. This is domestic. This is a very domestic story. And it's something that uh, we've been looking for for 10 years. You know, since the crash, we've been waiting for this catch up in capital spending. And um, it, it maybe finally is underway. And if it can be sustained, uh, it is the single most important development in terms of the macro picture since, you know, 2008, when everything exploded. Confidence leads investment decisions and confidence went through the roof when the president entered the White House, Donald Trump. Um, I'm wondering whether this trade discussion damages confidence to the extent that it could hurt the capital expenditure picture as well. Oh, that is the threat. Unquestionably, that's the threat. You know, we saw back in March, April, when the tariff stuff first really burst onto the scene with the steel and aluminum, the solar panels and the washing machines. Um, we saw immediately in the regional data uh, a hit in the parts of the country that are most dependent on on global trade flow. So the Richmond Fed, for example, which is a survey nobody watches very closely, suddenly had its biggest ever one-month drop. And that's because it includes the ports of Baltimore and Norfolk, Virginia and Charleston. So these places are very sensitive to this. The danger now is that if this tariff war expands to cover pretty much everything we import from China, you start to hit the whole country because you start to hit consumers directly and you depress their incomes and their spending power. And suddenly you're, you're a retailer or you're a service provider. Um, you don't appear to be directly affected by tariffs today, but you could be. And that uncertainty is proving to be really quite painful. Um, okay, this was all really interesting. John doesn't care. Panama, England on Sunday. What do you think? Well, I think England are going to win. Probably going to get 5 I mean, or 6 I watched, nil, maybe. John, I watched Peru, and they were fun because they couldn't penetrate to the goal, so they shot like Americans. They shot a lot. Yeah. They really were you impressed by that? You watched France-Peru yesterday. I watched the highlights. I don't watch the game. Are you going to watch the but final? But is Panama going to do the same minutes? thing? Are they going to shoot from no far out? I have no idea no, going to England are going to score 5 or 6, probably in the first 20 minutes. I'd really like, think oh, so? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah? Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, that, that was the dream I had last night anyway. You're really selling this, this game on Sunday. <laughs> you...
this is the interview of the day. If you're coming up on July 1st and you are at home recalibrating your net non-worth, you've done something wrong. You're told that the market's up double digit and you're not. You run a hedge fund. I mean, that's a joke, folks. Uh, but Lisa Shallot with us with Morgan Stanley, and she writes incredibly intelligently for Morgan Stanley Wealth Management and does this with a prodigious mathematics background uh, in her academics. Mathematics in my portfolio at home. Peter Lynch called it diversification. How diversified do I have to be in the equity markets right now? So right now we're we're actually encouraging clients to have um, you know be closer to their maximum level of diversification and and that really has to do with the fact that we've seen equity performance be extraordinarily concentrated quite <clears throat> frankly uh, for most of the right. last ten years in in tech and in consumer discretionary sectors and you know as we get into the late innings of the cycle, you really want to, to kind of protect your yourself and risk manage. Not that we're going to run a hedge at home, but do you get out of the techs or do you buy those that have not advanced? I mean, what a, temp, what a difficult it, it It is a difficult call. So, you know, look, our perspective is not that this is about exiting technology uh, or consumer discretionary per se. It's really more about uh, being much more selective about stock picking and utilizing quality and value as some of those attributes. So what are some of the things that have not participated as much uh, would be some of the stocks, uh, you know, in tech, for example, uh, that are in the the software services, hardware spaces that are that are more leveraged to that capital spending cycle that we think is coming. Um, so we would we would kind of balance um, uh, portfolios in in tech with that. But we're also looking at at owning energy, and we're looking at owning healthcare as well as we get a little bit more late cycle and a little bit more defensive. Uh, Lisa, this is within the equity market. Yes. Take me cross asset just a little bit and walk me through where we are in terms of correlations and how difficult or easy it is to actually be diversified in 2018. Yeah, so that, that's a fantastic uh, point. You know, one of the things that uh, has plagued portfolios, I think, uh, for a good portion of, the, of this cycle has been that we haven't had great diversification between stocks and bonds and, and you know, uh, between and among uh, stocks and, and credit. They've been very, very, very highly correlated. Um, I think we're at that breaking point right now where we're beginning to see the values of diversification where stocks are in fact uh, pretty meaningfully outperforming uh, treasuries year to date where where um, you know investment grade credit has begun to underperform a little bit which is at uh, a contrast to, to what's happened in high yield where total returns in high yield have actually held up uh, so diversification is beginning to work uh, and we think as the cycle matures it will continue to do so what do you consider to be the reason that explains the outperformance in, in high yield further down in credit quality when investment grade is looking soft? Yeah, no, so that's a fantastic question. We we often get it. Um, one of the things that's happened is that, you know, the investment grade market is facing two headwinds, really. Um, one is issuance, right? So 
we continue to see um, just a, a huge explosion uh, of supply. And then secondarily, we're at a period in the cycle where treasuries are finally uh, actually yielding something. And so um, we're getting competition uh, in, in, in the middle of the ratings band, in the AA kind of space, uh, with treasuries, where investment grade is the spreads are so tight, you're just not getting paid enough for the underlying interest rate yeah. risk. Um, and so you may as well just just own, um, you know, the, the maturity match treasuries. How's dividend growth going? I mean, I mean, I've heard about share buybacks and we did a tax cut and everybody bought back shares. But what about dividend growth? Yeah. So dividend growth is um, is one of the reasons that stocks are doing so well uh, this year, uh, despite valuations. You've got the share buybacks, uh, but we're looking at dividend growth and, uh, you know, payouts still remain below average when you look at them. Uh, overall across the S&P 500. Um, and dividend growth is looking in this kind of 6% range when and you compare that to to the level at which uh, earnings per share are, look, are looking to grow this year, which is about 18 based on consensus. With, within this is the biggest mistake people make. You, you have people come in and they've got a pot of money and everybody's all happy, happy, happy. Forget about the happy, happy, happy. What's the biggest mistake people are making right now? So I think the biggest mistake people are making is, um, you know, thinking that they can time the market and, and trying um, to sell uh, or, you know, trying to, to pick an entry point. You know, one of the things that we've said is that it is late in the cycle. We probably want to keep our, our current positions intact until we see more indications of a real change in the economic outlook, which we don't see yet. Um, but this is a time when we can be opportunistic with our cash. We don't need to try to be cute um, and, quote, unquote, wait for the correction. We can sit in cash for a little while now. Um, we're actually getting paid to uh, mm -hmm. have cash, and it's the first time well, in a decade. So cash is an asset class for us. Lisa Shell, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With Morgan Stanley Wealth uh, Management. This is a joy. There is a pedigree to research. There is a trailing history of excellence in research. And you can go back on hydrocarbons 15, and I dare say even longer ago, to a shop at Deutsche Bank, where on the back of their research report, they had the definitive Excel spreadsheet on Wall Street of supply and demand. And Adam Sabinski and Paul Sankey would then tell you what they got wrong in gaming supply. Move it forward at Mizuho America's Paul Sankey uh, joins us uh, this morning. Congratulations on the new effort with Mizuho. And it, it, it's certainly a wonderful time. I remember a time where you guys blew it on Russia supply. It do I mean, I don't want to bring up one of your greatness <laughs> calls, but there was a moment where you guys, Adam, totally got wrong Russian supply dynamics. Do you feel that dumb now? Do you actually know? Do you actually know what supply dynamics are? In uh, I think the Russian call, especially with the way they're working with Saudi as closely as they are, which is a massive change, yes, uh, has made it certainly more transparent. And as well as the fact, remember, Tom, now that the, the Russian companies are quoted, so the data is somewhat better, just right. uh, it's the Russian level of disclosure, obviously. <laughs> but uh, we still, I think, have a much better idea of what's going on in Russia. And I would highlight that the main change here is to get off the subject of being wrong in the past. The main real huge dynamic here has been the Saudi-Russia uh, entente that we have through the auspices of OPEC, Russia being a non-OPEC member, 
uh, doesn't change the fact that OPEC decisions are now basically made by those two countries. They're made by those two countries. So is it, what's the Vienna thing? Is it like a is it like a play? Is it like a three X soap opera? It it really somewhat is. I mean, people had talked about the death of OPEC from uh, one Naimi in fourteen couldn't get cuts from the other members and and you know rolled the market over very aggressively. Um, now. Uh, it, it, it's become almost a stronger organization in a, in a strange way because you now have NOPEC and you've got these additional members uh, such as, for example, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, uh, Oman, who essentially form part of the meeting circus. But at a given level, it's a circus. And in, in the response you have is it's Saudi, Russia. Does America play in at all? Because I see chart after chart of, of oil independence in America. Uh, America is absolutely huge. The Saudis love Trump. Are we part of the cartel? <laughs> uh, no, but when Donald says, can you bring the uh, oil price down, it doesn't take long before we have an announcement of increased production. Now, there's obviously other factors there, but a, a key factor was unquestionably uh, the president saying, okay. saying prices are too high. And don't forget... And I don't want to be—I uh, don't want to get any legal trouble here. But you know, there's also a strong relationship between uh, this administration and the Russians. How is demand? Because I make a joke about your truly extraordinary work years ago with Adam Siminski. But part of your courage intellectually was not only to do the supply game, but actually to also figure out the demand side, which to me right now is rather a mystery, isn't it? Well, demand has always been the first principle. So it's really the question of getting demand right first and yeah. then worrying about supply. My view uh, is that you know the global economy is stronger than people appreciate from having done quite a bit of travel in emerging markets mm -hmm. over the past uh, six months months. One interesting line given my new employers at uh, Mizuho is that Japan is currently in its longest economic expansion since World War II. And it's really a, right. global, it's a global picture. So it's not, you know, the patchy stuff we normally see of a bit of weakness here and a bit of strength there. Europe's doing well, as you know. All of that adds up to very strong demand, Tom. Are there a lot of tankers sitting off Singapore? I remember the Bloomberg no. Business Week cover years ago of all the tankers. Quite the opposite. Out. Quite the opposite. The Saudi-Russia Entente that we've talked about since 16 has brought down inventory levels aggressively. And we're now below historic average levels in right. global oil inventory. One area where we may get rising inventory is if the sanctions on Iran story gets going and, the, and, and we now see uh, companies unwilling to buy Iranian oil as a new emerging threat this summer. There's a number of issues here regarding threats. One is Iran. The other is obviously Venezuela. We have Libya. But also remember, as a result of this meeting, we now have less spare capacity and less oil in inventory. So the market is subject to volatile risk with this strength of demand that we have. What is your oil call? I mean, I mean, uh, what I find remarkable is no one rationalized up to 70, and now it's, you know, something that we all expect. But what is the call 12 months out on oil? Well, we find room to be extremely bullish. I mean, I think that the liquidity globally that we've seen over the past 10 years, we all know, has to end with inflation. And the way we're really getting uh, evidence of this liquidity is the strength of global oil demand in my business. And I think the way that we're going to play through into inflation is by essentially running out of oil supply and having too much oil demand. And therefore, the right. inflation mechanism is going to be $100 plus uh, oil prices. One of the things I think that, that all of us don't get is the mathematics of how tight supply and demand are. Yeah. Describe for our audience, we talk about oil supply as a separate entity, but that Marshallian cross of mm. supply and demand is really pretty tight, isn't oh, it? Oh, my word, you can't underestimate it. I mean, let's start with just the basic number of 100 million barrels a day of demand. We have to meet that every single day. Every day we need to find 100 million barrels. barrels. Wow. And 
you know, Christophe de Margerie, one of my favorite, uh, unfortunately late CEO of Total, believed we could not supply physically more than 100 million barrels a day. That was his call 10 years ago uh, before he tragically passed. And now we find ourselves at 100 million barrels a day and we find the Saudis, uh, one of the most interesting comments to come out of the OPEC meeting today was uh, the energy minister of Saudi Arabia saying, we have 2 million barrels a day of spare capacity. That's very expensive to run. And what does that mean? It means that it's very expensive to just leave ready to produce oil sitting there, maintained and not make money from it. And they feel, I think, at a given point, I thought there was a huge line from the OPEC meeting that no one really picked up on. What they're saying, I think, is they're going to run less spare capacity and that we're going to run more risk in the oil market as a result. There'll be a lower inventory yeah. out there. So if we add all that up, right. to answer your question, right. we've got 100 million barrels a day of oil demand globally. We may have right. 2 million barrels a day spare after this right. increase. I mean, it is drum tight. And if you see something like Libya, in right. a week from nowhere, we lose potentially 700,000 okay. barrels a day. Then how do you respond to the international relations set? I think of the great Robert Kaplan, folks, my book of the summer, The Return of Marco Polo's uh, Road. Uh, Robert Kaplan on China and the South China Sea. Within those tight inventories, do you have concern about the gap from the Malacca Strait up to Mizuho's Japan? Oh, completely. I mean, look, again, the current inventory level, which is lowered from what we thought was high at 60 days of forward cover of demand. So there's only 60 days there's of inventory. There's only 60 days of No, there's 50 up. now. <laughs> they oh, okay. brought down the inventory levels. So basically 50 days of forward cover if everything, you know, if you lose any kind of significant supply, as you're highly, you're quite rightly saying, there are really a major choke point is the Straits of Malacca. Uh, you've obviously got one uh, in the Gulf uh, of Arabia as well, Gulf mm -hmm. of Persia. And, um, you know, there's immense risk out there. There really is. Additionally, I think what people are missing here, which is a huge point, is the Permian is now constrained. So one of the biggest growth drivers that we've had over the past six, seven years can't produce more oil. In fact, yesterday we had Marathon Oil down over 5% because they said we've had to drop a rig in the Permian because okay. we can't do anything with the oil. But with your price bullishness and the, the constraint of supply and demand, you know, basically hydrocarbons have been unloved since time began. Do you go long hydrocarbon stocks? Tom, you're talking to about me and Adam Siminski getting the Russia call wrong. Oil had its biggest pull run from 04 to 08. So, you know. <laughs> from 04 to 08, it was loved. We went to 12% of the S&P. Past 10 to 8 years, we've been dreadful, I admit. But this year is better. And we're showing at least, uh, at least we're keeping up with the market this year after, you know, a brutal year last year. Some of these companies, and I'll cite Chevron, are doing very, very well. They're generating large yeah. quantities of free cash flow, and their intention basically is to buy back stock and pay more dividends. And we've pushed very, very hard for these companies to finally generate a decent return for shareholders. Do they have a new, do they have a new religion I, like the airlines got? We called it the Renaissance theme, you know, and the idea is you can do better. You have Pim, you've got to go to the University of Manchester to say Renaissance that way. <laughs> yeah, well done. You know, I, I can't keep up. Yeah. I mean, so see the old, the, the old you, spinning mills, right? You know, you know the little bar, you know the little bar at Claridge's? Yes. The Lalique bar? Paul holds court there. Well I mean, done. Anyway, the point martini. is that the companies have got financial discipline uh, they got better. a new religion. There's, there's a little bit of an exception with Exxon. Exxon have a tremendous amount of growth in their CapEx over the next five years. But if you look at Chevron, they have no need right. to grow CapEx, and they have volume growth. And at these kind of oil prices, they're generating right. terrific free cash flow. Well, this has been wonderful. Paul, thank you. Thank you so much with Mizuho. Just thrilled that he's with us today, uh, giving us perspective, of course, on those meetings in Vienna. But forward, uh, what we will see in oil. And oil right now, 74, up almost $2, 74.96. Sankey driving the market higher.
Bring in Professor DeLong. All right, so go ahead, Professor Long. The, the DeLong, the, the economic implications of uh, current immigration policy. In the short run, who knows? Uh, Trump has absolutely no idea what the impact of economic impact of his immigration and trade policies are. And apparently neither do lots of other people in the administration. Wilbur Ross was just saying earlier this week that the United States has a trade surplus with Canada in dollars, but a trade deficit with Canada in terms of value. A statement that makes absolutely no sense and that appears to reach back to ideas of Karl Marx in the mid-19th century that Marx could never make coherent and never make worth at all. Right? That values fluctuate around what people are willing to pay for things. Um, there's nothing, value cannot be consistently different than price. In the longer run, um, look, in the longer run, um, the United States was a superpower and Britain was merely a great power in the 20th century because the 40 million emigrants from Europe to elsewhere in the late 19th and early 20th century went to the United States rather than to Britain, Canada, and Australia. If Britain, Canada, and Australia had been as welcoming to immigrants as the United States was between 1870 and 1920, um, well, then the 20th century history would have been very different, and kind of the capital of the English-speaking world would have been Westminster um, rather than kind of Washington, D.C., that the United States' willingness to let huge numbers of people in, um, absolutely huge numbers, because they wanted to become Americans and because they became Americans, was the principal thing that made the United States the richest and most powerful nation in the world, that made um, the 20th century the American century, you know, cut off or even substantially limit immigration. And you're guaranteeing that the 21st century is not going to be an American century. It might be an Indian century. It might be a Chinese century. It might be a European century. But if Donald Trump's policies on trade and immigration are continued, it certainly will not be an American century. All right. So having so having said that and eloquently put, uh, you stopped at 1920. Yeah. And uh, I'm wondering if then you can proceed into the future from there and whether no, we have created a kind of nostalgia for a period that never really existed anyway. Well, we then had this 40-year hiatus from 1925 to 1965 when the anti-immigration people kind of um, won. And I think this was to our great shame because we locked a bunch of people who wanted to flee the Nazis into Europe right, before and during World War II, and a hell of a lot of them died as a result. Um, but the fact that oh. from 1925 to 1965 mm -hmm. we did push immigration very low, you know, it did substantially change the character of... Right. America, in the sense that it was no longer so visible to the people who, say, reached maturity in 1975, that we were a nation of immigrants. Um, it 
seemed that most people were here and their parents had been born here. And maybe there were these weird grandparents or great-grandparents from the old country, but they weren't around that very much if they were still alive. Um, And those people who came to maturity in, say, 1970, um, they're now the people who are rather foolishly watching Fox rather than Bloomberg right now. Um, And so as a result, they're being scared out of their wits and their eyeballs, their ears are glued to the screen or the signal while they're sold fake diabetes cures and overpriced gold funds. Well, okay, Um, hang on, hang on, Professor Professor DeLong. Okay, in that that context, just to push it forward into economics, is it it possible, oh, go ahead, Tom. All right. What I want to know is, is it possible that what you're describing in terms of that extra push that you get from immigrants, could that be one of the reasons why we've seen what's gone on with GDP below what we think of as trend? Well, as you say, the big puzzle seems to be declining entrepreneurship and declining business formation. And if you look back at American history... You know, from Andrew Carnegie and Nikola Tesla to today, a huge chunk of our innovators, our inventors, our entrepreneurs have been smart, industrious people coming from abroad. That the United States is willingness to be open to immigration means that we've creamed the entrepreneurs and the innovators off of the rest of the world and given them homes here. And Trump is now trying and, in fact, is having remarkable success in reversing that. Professor, we're going to have to leave it there with breaking news. Professor DeLong at the University of California, Berkeley, can't say enough about his website and also his Twitter feed as well. Very informative and always a source of uh, debate. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.